to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. By the end of March 1865, it was clear to Robert E. Lee, among others, that the Confederacy's military defeat was inevitable. The battle that clinched that result in the East started and ended at Five Forks, Virginia, on April 1, 1865. But a war of words that began that day would continue for decades, as participants on the Union side took aim at one another, with careers, reputations, and sacred honor hanging in the balance. We'll find out who ultimately won that struggle when we talk with Dr. Michael McCarthy, author of Confederate Waterloo, The Battle of Five Forks, April 1, 1865, and The Controversy That Brought Down a General. We'll do that tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you this evening from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in the field at 205 Oxford Road from the special annex tonight, not from the den, but from the playroom. Talk about that in a moment. But even though not broadcasting from the campus of East Carolina University, where my day job takes place, still not representing ECU, just in the same town. My guest, likewise, will not speak for himself or anybody else, always on our own here at Civil War Talk Radio. Well, occasionally the show does come to you from uh, the home base rather than the office. This week it is because it is the first show from a new room in the house. The playroom has been converted to uh, office space. A, A desk has been moved in from what used to be my den, small room, crammed with books and other things. But it occurred uh, to Emily and me over the weekend that the the 
girls are away at college or off living their lives. No one has actually played in the playroom in six or seven years and not likely to start. So while I've been threatening for many years to build a model railroad empire in each of their bedrooms as soon as they left the house, uh, that's really not likely to happen. But we moved a giant walnut and marble top desk uh, halfway across the house here, weighed 400 pounds. It was an incredible engineering effort using at one point a car jack to help lift part of it. How does a humble professor get such a magnificent desk? The answer is you marry somebody who works in the office furniture industry, as Emily did for many years before she also became a teacher. And uh, it was a showroom model they were, I think, going to discard, actually, as it was no longer in the product line. And we ended up getting this giant, magnificent desk. The problem is it's very hard to move around. But here it is. Civil War Talk Radio comes to you tonight live from... uh, the new home of, at least for this evening, of of the show. Yesterday, I spent much of the day in Raleigh, North Carolina, helping move one of the girls, but also attending a meeting of the North Carolina Civil War Center Board. This is something I I thought I would mention to you, uh, might be of interest, even if you do not live in or near North Carolina. It's an attempt to start a statewide museum dedicated to the Civil War era, And what I found particularly interesting uh, about the effort, which has been going on for some years, has raised uh, millions of dollars, actually, already, and is now hoping to get the state legislature to kick in a little bit. We'll see if they come through. But the center has a presence online. You can go to their Facebook page, look for North Carolina Civil War Center. The concept of the center is a place that is somewhat like, uh, like Civil War Talk Radio, a place to... Uh, discuss issues, to have people who've studied matters come in and give their considered opinion, and listeners are free to respond with emails if they disagree, or more frequently they respond with complaints to me that they're tempted to buy another book, and I'm I'm sorry for that, but but not actually sorry, of course. Uh, But the idea is we don't proselytize for any particular view of the war. I have mine, you have yours. And we, when we do debate or discuss, it's evidence-based, uh, you know, looking at the records. And the Civil War Center is making, I think, the right effort to try to be that kind of civic space where people can bring different views and hopefully bring their evidence and uh, discuss this controversial time in American history in a, a meaningful way, not just with empty opinions. So I'm very hopeful that it will succeed. It may take some years more to raise the rest of the money. But if you hear about it, if someone asks you for support for the North Carolina Civil War Center, it is a legitimate enterprise and and a good thing. Other things you can support, of course, are this show. Go to impedimentsofwar.org, learn about who's going to be on the show. Find out that next week, no live show, I will be on the road with this hallowed ground. It is your last chance, May 17th, 2017 is the night we're coming to you right now. Uh, Last chance before we leave on Saturday to go visit these Civil War sites. Love to have you. Uh, I've been hearing from some past travelers in the last few days, remembering last year's trip or the year before. It was uh, a good experience for all. So no live show next week because I will be on the road. On the 31st, back in Greenville, and Dave Powell will join us to talk about his Chickamauga Trilogy, in particular, Volume 3. 
it's a very interesting book in many ways. Then on June 7th, Kevin McCarthy, jazz musician, will uh, present us with a very different kind of project, a musical interpretation uh, of the wartime era. On the 14th, Tim Smith, Timothy B. Smith, a friend of the show, returns with his latest book, Grant Invades Tennessee, the 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donaldson. And then I'll be on the road the following week to the Civil War Roundtable of Augusta, Georgia. Meets uh, midweek, I think, that, uh, or the beginning of that, that next week. Uh, and rather than dash back, I may linger there and not be back for the show. And then we're into the summer hiatus as I gather opportunities to interview new people in the fall. Some shows already lined up. One you know about Gary Cross, who we'd hoped to have on earlier this year, but had a medical uh, emergency curtail that. Uh, Gary should be up and around and ready to go on September 6th. And we'll have lots of other people. Uh, some very good listener suggestions have been coming in, and I've been contacting people and looking forward to the fall season already. So, Lots going on at Civil War Talk Radio. Be sure to go to the Facebook page uh, or ask your nephew or niece how to go to the Facebook page and like the show. Or if you're not a member, have them like the show. It it doesn't matter who does it. The goal this year is to get 1,000 likes. At that point, nothing special will happen. I'll just stop talking about it. And finally, uh, don't forget the Civil War Roundtable Congress, September 16th, 2017. Go to the Puget Sound Civil War Roundtable website, uh, pscwrt.org, and learn about that. Seems like a good program. Well, tonight's program brings us to a book about the end of the war, near the end of the war, in the Eastern Front, the Battle of Five Forks. It's not a battle we've talked about on the show before. It's not one that's been written about extensively. But Michael J. McCarthy has done so in a book called Confederate Waterloo, The Battle of Five Forks, April 1, 1865, and the controversy that brought down a general. So we will find out what what is going on in, in a book that I will say ahead of time I found to be very interesting indeed. Uh, let's get the author in. Uh, Dr. McCarthy, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Hi, how are you tonight? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, uh, you, I address you formally, Dr. McCarthy. Is it okay if we go by first names? Do you do you? Yeah, that's fine with to? me. Mike is usually how I go. Well, let's let's do that and call me Jerry. That will save us both time. Uh, okay. But I did want to s- stress that because looking at your biography, I see that you. Uh, you know, worked in government, uh, at MPA in, in public finance, uh, and public management from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Listeners to the show will be interested to know that I once attended Harvard University. I think I've only mentioned that 400 times on the show <laughs> up to now. So I want to get that in right at the beginning. Okay. Uh, but you had a long career, in other words, and then decided Many people in their retirement say, oh, I think I'll write a book about the Civil War. But you actually went and studied it uh, formally. You, you you actually got the credential. Uh, tell me about that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's sort of a long story. Um, I don't know exactly how to, to lay it out, but 
I was working at uh, the Department of Transportation in New York, and as his career was going on, as the political uh, winds in New York blew in different directions, I got in a situation one time, I thought, hmm, if this doesn't pan out for the rest of my career, what am I going to do? And having the master's in history from years before, and being very interested in Five Forks at that time, uh, as a result of a Civil War roundtable trip we took down to uh, Virginia, I thought, well, if I'm going to write a book on Civil War, why don't I do what you just said, get the, get the credential as well, because I love history and I'm not just going to write. So I did that and uh, made my dissertation, The Battle of Five Forks, uh, which was interesting because my professor, when, he was, when I was trying to set up a dissertation topic, he said, you can write about anything you want as long as it's not some silly battle of the Civil War. <laughs> so then I had to convince him that it wasn't a silly battle. Uh, but he, uh, he went along finally with it, and uh, that's why I wrote the dissertation. And the book is edited from the, from the dissertation because things, information is always coming available, so I added additional information and I made some corrections and some adjustments, put in photos and things. So that's well, sort of how it happened, and as it turned out, I stayed in the Department of Transportation. I did not leave and uh, just got the, the uh, credential, and the only thing that's come out of it is the book. Since well, I never have taught in uh, in a school. Well, I hope you feel it was a worthwhile investment because the book is, uh, as I said in the introduction, very interesting. But I, I'm impressed because, it, as I'm sure you also know, people who, when you mention your Civil War interest, will say, "Oh, yes, uh, I, I think I'll write a book someday." Uh, but to actually put in the the effort to to get the training, to work with someone in the field, to learn the uh, the way it's done, uh, not not just as a matter of a closed guild. There are many people who don't have the credential who are excellent Civil War historians, and you don't need to right. have it. But it is one way of, of being assured that you you know what you're doing, that, that you understand how sources work and how to use them and where to find them. And uh, that, that made this book immediately attractive to me, that here was someone who's going to walk the walk as well as talk the talk but let me ask you about five forks uh I, sure. it, your, your experience about uh, any topic but a silly civil war battle i'm sure resonates with a lot of uh people in academia we we still fight that battle sometimes with uh professors <laughs> yeah. from the, the old school who, who want everything to be social history uh, but five forks in particular I, I will say if you asked me five ten years ago i would think of it as sort of like watching the last two minutes of a 28-7 to seven football game. You know, the outcome is decided. It's just a matter of a lot of timeouts and maybe an injury or two. And uh, But you know how it's going to end. Not very interesting. I've come around. I find it now uh, quite fascinating. What was it that, that drew you to this particular Well, uh, as I mentioned, I went on the Civil War roundtable trip to Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chris Calkins... Uh, was our was our guy that day, and we were going to do the Appomattox campaign. And the first place we visited was Five Forks. And he was talking about Five Forks, and I said, "Oh, this is sort of interesting." I'm not. I also wasn't too familiar with it. But what really struck me was when he mentioned that Sheridan was uh, a New Yorker, which I had not realized. And to this day, it's not. It's still a, a controversy whether he's actually a New Yorker. But he realizes himself as being born in Albany, New York. And uh, so he's a New Yorker, and General Warren is a New Yorker. Uh, 
And outside of our Capitol, which I see saw often, was a big equestrian statue of General Sheridan. But what, what Chris Calkins mentioned was that all the papers of General Warren were in the State Library just 600 yards away from the statue. So I thought, well, what a sort of a peculiar, you know, in my imagination, I'm thinking, what an interesting thing. Here's the, the fight between these two guys, which he talked about, and I had a very, very general idea of it when he, you know, at the end of the session. But I said, the, the papers are right there, and uh, maybe I should take a look at them. And what I found was an incredible treasure trove that I don't know how many Civil War officers kept the kind of records that Warren kept. I think we had like 56 boxes of, um, of papers, not all about Five Forks and not all about the Civil War even, but this man, he kept matchboxes. He kept a lot of things. He was a saver and a very meticulous kind of person. So I found that having the source material made it even more interesting. And then, of course, the controversy and the back and forth between Grant and Sheridan and Warren and, and Warren's defenders and Grant's uh, friends and Sheridan's, of course, uh, it just got more and more interesting the more I looked at it. Well, it, it is, in many ways, as you say, it's a, a historian's dream to have such a rich set of sources, in particular the, the, the military commission that looked at uh, Warren's behavior at Five Forks, the Court of Inquiry. We'll talk about that and more. We're going to take a short break now. We are talking tonight with Mike McCarthy. He's the author of Confederate Waterloo, The Battle of Five Forks, April 1, 1865, and the controversy that brought down a general. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, 
Back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dr. Michael J. McCarthy, author of Confederate Waterloo, The Battle of Five Forks, April 1, 1865, and the controversy that brought down a general. Five Forks, of course, was the battle at the very end of the Petersburg campaign where a small mobile force under George Pickett of Gettysburg fame defended the very end or a spot beyond the end of the Confederate uh, western flank. And it's attacked by a Union cavalry force under Philip Sheridan, the famous cavalry general, supported by the 5th Corps of Infantry, commanded by Governor K. Warren, the one of the heroes of Little Round Top of Gettysburg. The Union wins a smashing victory, but uh, things don't end there. Uh, so there's the quick thumbnail sketch of what happened. Uh, but Mike, could you tell us more about the, the battle itself? What, uh, How did the Union win such a dramatic victory that day? Well, of course, on the Confederate side, it uh, they had a great advantage when uh, General Pickett and a couple other senior officers decided to have lunch uh, well behind the lines and uh, basically missed the battle, which meant that the Confederates had to fight. They had five brigades of infantry and uh, three divisions of cavalry lined up along uh, what's called the White Oak Road, with the center being at Five Forks, with some artillery, which was important because they had artillery and the Union had none or virtually none at the battle. Um, but Pickett's miss, being missing was a significant factor because the Confederates made poor, were not able to make adjustments to their line. Uh, Sheridan's plan was to attack the left flank of the Confederate line, which, again, an, an unusual move was being defended by two brigades, from one from North Carolina, one from South Carolina, where the rest, the rest of the troops were all from Pickett's division, which were all Virginians, and the two Carolinian uh, brigades had fought at uh, Fort Stedman just a few days earlier and were a little bit played out, so they weren't the best people to be the, the victims of the attack. And Sheridan's plan was to hit them directly and to swing uh, the rest of the Fifth Corps uh, around that flank. The cavalry's role, and this is, again, discussed a lot, but the cavalry's role was basically just to hold the rest of the Confederate line where they were. They were not intending and never did actually make a, a, a real charge until the Confederate line started to crack uh, from the left. Uh, but anyway, uh, as we mentioned in the book, when Warren's people moved forward, Sheridan had misplaced the end of the line, and they started to move right past the Confederates without any action occurring. And only when the Confederates opened up on their far left flank did the Union folks realize that they were being that the Confederates were way to the left of where they had thought they were. So uh, General Ayers, one of the division commanders in the Fifth Corps, made a quick shift of his his force, but General Crawford continued to go in the pre-planned position, which was to move forward and then gradually swing to the left and come around the, the outside of the Confederate line. So he sort of missed a big part of the beginning of the battle. Uh, and General Griffin's division actually split. Some of it followed Crawford because they were lined up behind Crawford and the rest of it, mostly Chamberlain's and Gregory's people, they got in to attack the Confederates. So half of the the 5th Corps attacked the wing of the Confederate line going from, from at this stage from the east to the west 
where the Confederate line had been refused, and so that's where they were attacking, where, where General Crawford's people moved forward and over past the Confederate line. Uh, Warren, seeing Crawford do this, chased after him, caught up with him, and shifted him. By this time, he had gotten behind the Confederate line because he had swung around to the left, and he moved, turned him southward right in behind the Confederates. So all these movements that are going on by the Union forces, the Confederates are not reacting well. They're basically five separate commands. And each one, of course, is looking out for his own operation and is not as reluctant to shift people to another side of the battlefield and leave himself, you know, weakened. So they did some of that. Uh, Colonel Mayo moved some of his regiments to try to stop Crawford, but it was a few regiments against an entire division, and they were just run over. So, and by the time Pickett finally realized that there was a battle, uh, this was the old uh, acoustic shadow that you hear about in the war for some reason a lot, he never knew it was a battle until it was half over. He finally got back to the line, but by then Crawford was moving in behind his troops, and, and uh, his left flank had been pretty well crushed. And by this time, the Union cavalry was getting close enough. Now, they started to pursue the line, as, as the Confederate infantry people, as they were breaking down. Uh, at the end of the battle, the far right of the Confederate line, uh, General Corse's brigade, the last solid brigade that Pickett had, shifted to, to face westward or to, to face eastward. And uh, the Union folks were held up for a while until General Warren took the flag of the, of the Corps and uh, went, went out ahead of his troops. And then they, of course, chased after him and weren't going to let him go out in, the, in front and basically ran over the last uh, brigade of the Confederate line. Uh, the strategic value of this battle is the um, well, well, let's, called the South Side Railroad. Before, before we get into that, let, let me interrupt. Okay. Uh, before we get into sure. that, just uh, stay on the battle for a moment. So for those following along at home, uh, because the lines at Petersburg, the Confederate lines stretched all the way south around the city, this whole battle is fought with the Confederate force on the north end of the battlefield and the Union force on the south end of the battlefield. That's right. And you have the, the Union force moving north, as you say, Sheridan's cavalry fighting dismounted on foot are the holding force. They're keeping the Confederates in place along the, the White Oak Road. And then the Fifth Corps goes around their flank. It looks like a model battle in many ways. This is exactly how many generals during the war drew up their plans or hoped they would be executed where Warren's Fifth Corps goes around the Confederate eastern or left flank. Uh, as you say, one, two divisions are so far wide, they go all the way past the army and around and come back behind it, attack it from the rear and the flank at the same time, crush the, the Confederates. Uh, what you would expect at this point would be a celebratory telegram from U.S. Grant commanding all the Union forces in the east, uh, two generals, Sheridan and Warren, congratulating them on their great victory. Uh, you would expect Sheridan to shake hands with Warren and congratulate him on this marvelous flanking maneuver that smashed the Confederacy. But that's not what happens at all. Not at all. No. Well, what does happen? Well first, well, first of all, before the battle, in the preparation, Grant sends a message to Sheridan who has already indicated previously that he wasn't too fond of having the Fifth Corps as his, as his uh, partner in the battle. 
Uh, and he says, if you think Warren isn't doing his job, you're, you're authorized to relieve him. Now, again, Warren's direct commander is General Meade, Army of the Potomac. Sheridan is the reporting directly to General Grant. So you have a, a, an anomalous situation in, in command structure. Warren is only under Sheridan basically temporarily, and it's relatively rare, like really rare, for somebody in that situation to actually relieve a subordinate unless he's really done something bad. But Grant, having given Sheridan the hint, uh, Sheridan was happy to take advantage of it. I mean, there are... I mean, it goes back, it gets into the march the day before, and there's a lot of back and forth about what was Warren's problem. Uh, but primarily, I think it was that Sheridan didn't like Warren's approach to uh, being a soldier and being an officer and uh, had, had not respected him earlier in the war, even though he's testified many times, he hardly ever experienced Warren's uh, actual uh, work with him. He's never worked with him much in, in, the, in the war. But you know how an army is. There's a lot of chit-chat about anybody, and, and I'm sure Sheridan picked up what he thought was negative chit-chat about General Warren. And whatever it was, he was happy to, uh, to take the hint that Grant gave him and relieve him of his command, just as he basically had finished leading those troops over the last uh, uh, Confederate force in the battle. And, of course, the battle is significant because when Pickett's force is, is pretty much eliminated, Grant now has access to the Southside Railroad, and Lee has to leave Petersburg. He's, he cannot hold it because he will, he will lose all his supplies in another day, and he will be, uh, he will be cut off, and then he'll be forced to, you know, he'll be surrounded almost. But he certainly will have no supply line. So, so this that, really is that's the, the, really why it's called the Waterloo of the Confederacy. Exactly. So this this is the end of the line. Losing this battle unhinges the entire Petersburg line, which in right. turn makes Richmond untenable. Now Lee has to evacuate the Confederate capital, hopes to find maybe some supplies on his way westward toward Appomattox, but but we all know how that story will end. So this really right. is the last pitched battle between the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac. It's a decisive victory for the Union forces, but you've also got this unusual situation, as you described. Grant is the commander of all the Union forces. Meade, who commands the Army, reports directly to him. Sheridan reports, as you say, directly to Grant, not to Meade, not right. to Grant's... At this time, he is still called the commander of the Army of the Shenandoah, even though he's no longer in the Shenandoah. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got two separate armies, Sheridan and Meade both report to Grant. Right. And then when and Warren the is... For that, the reason for that is the fight that uh, Sheridan and Meade had earlier in 64, uh, after, uh, after the Battle of, uh, well, the, was, let's see, was it uh, Spots, no, not Spots, it was before, at, uh, at the Wilderness. At Yellow Tavern? Uh, wilderness. Mm-hmm. Well, it was at the this Wilderness... Was, where it was actually when the the Confederate in, or the uh, Army of the Potomac was trying to move to Spotsylvania ahead of Lee and get a march on, they got tangled up with with the cavalry. Grant Meade made some gave some orders to the cavalry, which Sheridan resented. They got into an argument. This is when Sheridan says, oh, "I could whip, uh, you know, the Confederate cavalry. I can and uh, whip, uh, you know, uh, the Confederate." I'm trying to think of his name right now. Uh, this is Hampton or Stewart? No, Stewart. 
Jeb okay. Stewart. He says, I can whip Jeb Stewart if you give me a chance. And Grant says, okay. And let's Sheridan and the cavalry go off on an absolutely, you know, uh, singular mission against the Confederate cavalry, leaving the Army of the Potomac pretty well bereft of cavalry. But, he went, but of course, by killing Jeb Stewart, they get the honors of being doing a great job. Most of the writers that I've seen thought it was a pretty uh, strategically a very poor decision to, to take his cavalry and move, do what they did. But anyway, so that's, that's where the fight between Meade and, and Sheridan had gotten to a situation where Sheridan no longer was going to report to Meade. He's a separate Army commander, and that meant that he and Warren had separate chains of command. So, so they don't communicate directly with one another until Warren's actually assigned to Sheridan uh, the night before, and and they don't receive Sheridan. their orders from the same person, which okay. is even more problematic. So, as, as you describe in the book, and we'll we'll let the readers buy this book and read it for the detail. Uh, on the night before the battle, there's a lot of telegrams being exchanged between Warren and Meade. Uh, between Grant and Sheridan, uh, some communication uh, uh, back and forth as to where Warren is, where he's supposed to be, how he's right. supposed to get there. And uh, there, there's a lot of, of confusion and misunderstanding involved there. But ultimately, Warren does show up, reports to Sheridan, gets his troops in position by, by 4 p.m. on the afternoon of April 1 and launches this attack we've described. Right. The attack, as, as as you described it, is a smashing victory. But in the aftermath, Sheridan rides up to Warren and instead of congratulating him, says, "I hereby relieve you of command. Go report to General Grant. You're you're out." Uh, right. This is you know a a shocking thing to do to a military officer, and not surprisingly, um, uh, uh, Warren is not happy with it. Well, that's so, an understatement. What does he do? Well, first of all, Warren is a very, he's an engineer. He's a Corps of Engineers. He graduated second in his class, West Point, was put in the engineers. He's an excellent engineer. He was engineer for the Army of the Potomac. And he could have been a great engineer privately. I mentioned that his brother-in-law built the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, but if he goes into the private sector, if he leaves the Army, he can not get the court of inquiry that he keeps demanding or requesting. So he stays in the Army. He takes the reduction in grade from major general to major in the Corps of Engineers and then spends 15 years in places like uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, looking at the Mississippi, looking at bridges, building bridges, and, and that kind of work, all the while trying to get this, this hearing. And, so what uh, is a court of inquiry exactly? Well, uh, what is a court of it's, it's a, it is a peculiarity to the military. It's not a trial. It's some people call it like a um, uh, like a grand jury, but it's it, what it is is if someone believes that they have been given um, it, they were not treated fairly by their commander, usually it's their commander, or if if or if a commander feels a soldier has done a, a poor job, an officer in these cases. You can ask for like a, a review to see if a wrongdoing has been done, and that might result in a court-martial of whoever committed the wrongdoing. Now, this 
particular one would never have done it, would never have gotten into a court martial because it, you know, it was so it was 15 years after the fact, but it certainly would have changed the record of the two soldiers. Uh, so, so he, he, he doesn't oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it did. They, they both, uh, you know, they both paid attention to the outcome of this court of inquiry. So the, the inquiry is not granted initially. Um, uh, General Grant is, is commander of the United States Army, and he's not interested in seeing his friend Sheridan, with whom he has a close relationship, uh, uh, being subject to this. Although really, Warren, who's requesting it, would be the one who, in effect, is put on trial. He he wants his conduct looked at. And, exactly. And exactly. That's what, it's sort of a reverse of a trial, and the person right. who is, in effect, accused is asked for it so that he can show that nobody can prove him having done wrong. That he did nothing sort of, wrong. He didn't sort of deserve to be relieved. Exactly. So Grant won't do it, and uh, it doesn't help when Grant becomes president, elected in 1868. Now it's clear Grant's uh, this, this up the chain of command through the Secretary of War. This trial won't be granted. Uh, eventually, uh, as, as you described by the uh, late 1870s, things start to change. Fitz John Porter gets his court of inquiry. Uh, the listeners know about the Second Manassas events right. there. Well, he actually, now, it, in that case, he gets it, a a revision of his court martial. That was a court martial that he had, and now true. it's going to be retried in effect, and he gets exonerated in a retrial of a court of in, of, of a of a court of martial. A court martial. So, that, so it's technically it's a little different concept. It's the same thing. So uh, we're going to take Hayes another short break. Changes it. Yes, we'll take another short break. We'll come back and find out what happens when Warren finally does get his court of inquiry. We'll find out from our guest, Michael J. McCarthy, author of Confederate Waterloo, Battle of Five Forks, April 1, 1865, and the controversy that brought down a general. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Michael J. McCarthy, author of Confederate Waterloo, The Battle of Five Forks, Virginia, Five Forks, April 1, 1865, and the controversy that brought down a general. As we talked about in the first two segments, the controversy involves the commander of the Union Fifth Corps, uh, Governor K. Warren, who is relieved of command by his temporary superior, uh, General Philip Sheridan, the famous cavalry commander, even though Warren had just led uh, his wing of their combined force to a smashing victory over the Confederates at Five Forks uh, for reasons that uh, were not entirely clear at the time, uh, Sheridan takes advantage of the authority Grant gave him to relieve Warren if he wanted to. And even though Warren seems to have done everything he was supposed to, Sheridan went ahead and relieved of command, the aggrieved General Warren requested a court of inquiry to look into his behavior and uh, vindicate what he had done at the battle and demonstrate he didn't deserve that, uh, what had happened to him. But it's not until 1879 that the court of inquiry is finally formed. Uh, when it finally gets going, uh, let's talk about it. Um, how uh, how does this proceed, and, and, and what, what kinds of things come out in this, this quasi-trial? Well, it's a, it certainly is a quasi-trial. Uh, they have a court. Uh, General Hancock is the, uh, is the head of the court until he leaves halfway through when he becomes nominated for president of the United States. So he, he leaves. Uh, uh, but they have a court. They have uh, witnesses. They have lots of documentation. Um, and basically the, the, the witnesses try to prove that General Warren has done wrong. And General Warren, of course, is in effect, although he is defending himself, Sheridan even says early on that he is in the role of the defendant, which is, you know, psychologically absolutely the case. What's, what's being argued here is did Sheridan do wrong when he relieved Warren? I mean, regardless of the technicalities of the way army, the army looks at partic- you know, military law, that's what the average person, and that's what I saw, and I think most people would see. It says, does, does Warren prove himself to have done right, and did Sheridan show himself to have been in the wrong? And so I, that's, I thought it was, that's the way it started. It, it was a brilliant stroke by uh, Warren's representative to call Sheridan as his first witness and have Sheridan lay out his whole story, uh, uh, his whole version of the battle that would justify him relieving Warren, that becomes the the narrative that uh, that uh, Warren's subsequent witnesses take apart step by step. Absolutely, I mean that is the key to the whole, stru- like you said, the structure of the of the court of inquiry by having Sheridan lay everything out. First of all, Warren's attorney Albert Stickney has the opportunity to chip at everything Sheridan has said. And both Grant and Sheridan uh, 
I think one of the criticisms you'd have to have on both of them is they didn't prepare very well. I mean, Sheridan knew this was important. I mean, he... he he does some things after the fact that are that show he knew it was important but he comes in not well prepared not knowing the details and saying things that could be demonstrated inaccurate that are inaccurate early on and through his testimony so he he comes up as not the very best witness for his own case um but but uh, but he is one of, he is the first witness, the first real witness, and he spends a lot of time on the stand laying out everything he says about Sheridan or about Warren. Uh, there are these four imputations, which I don't know, they're they're sort of technical now, but they some have to do with the night before the ones you mentioned. Some have to do with bringing his troops up uh, before the battle. Warren said they'd be there at four. They got there at four, but Sheridan was mad because they were not as there as when he really wanted them, and and some difficulty during the beginning of the battle with uh, with one division of of uh, Warren's troops, which n- nobody ever found to be very significant, including the commander of that division. But those were the those were the uh, the arguments that Sheridan had laid out after the battle, right right out right away after the battle, and those were the uh, imputations that Warren sought to disprove. Uh, with um i want to sort of leap ahead in time a little bit the the trial goes on for for months uh, a lot months, of witnesses are called time. on both sides long time uh then there's the the report has to be written the judge advocate general uh adds his own report uh, uh william comes sherman in command of the army adds his report uh Here's a spoiler alert, listeners. If you're if you are following this like a, a detective story, uh, don't listen to the next part because here's. Let's <laughs> uh, um, give it away. General Warren dies before the report is published. That's correct. Uh, the report uh, of, of the panel itself basically shows that Warren did everything he was supposed to do, and and your research, your book makes a very convincing case that Warren did everything a general could conceivably be expected to do and uh, maybe a little more. Uh, certainly the imputation that he was not at the front, which, which Sheridan makes verbally at the time, uh, is false. So Warren led the charge with the core flag in hand. Right. Uh, he, was, he was the most front. Having said all that, um, if you read Bruce Catton, if you read uh, most secondary source reports that are not focused on this battle, but just mention it, uh, they say Sheridan uh, hot-headed relieved uh, Warren, perhaps impetuously, but Warren basically was too slow and had it coming. Too Warren slow. was like, he was like yep, McClellan. I, I would say there's many sources like that. Uh, why? Why is that? Th- if that wasn't really the case. Why did they well, get into the I, history? I, I would suggest if, if the reader would read General Grant's memoirs and his mm. description of the Battle of Five Forks, which another historian has said was so inaccurate as to be fictitious. Uh, General Grant did not really pay attention to this battle, and when he wrote about it, he just took everything more, or Sharon must have told him on the fly and incorporated it into a, a a description that basically says Warren wasn't even at the battle, that he, only one division of his... See, what, what 
Grant's confused is the fact that two of, of Warren's divisions went around. He mm-hmm. said, well, only one division even got to the battle. The others were still back, in, you know, miles away trying to get to the, war, to the front. They were so slow. That's, and that's where the idea of slowness really gets accentuated, is that Grant wrote that he didn't even get to the, to the battle. The whole, the whole corps didn't make it. And that was totally wrong. I mean, he had been there in the morning. The whole corps had reached Sheridan in the morning. It was Sheridan who put him in a bivouac until 1 o'clock when he told him to come up, and at 4 o'clock they were ready to go. All this is confused in, in Grant's uh, description of what happened. And because it's Grant, I think a lot of historians say, okay, and there it is. And I have read descriptions of the Battle of Five Forks that are pretty much paraphrases of what General Grant wrote, and a couple quotations even. Uh, so that starts the ball rolling. And, of course, Sheridan himself, although he is more accurate, he, he accentuates everything that he disliked about what, what Warren was doing. He thought he was, his attitude was not aggressive enough. Well, I mean, even the court said, well, that's sort of vague. Your attitude, the person's attitude isn't, isn't aggressive enough. He was, he was moving his troops. The troops got there. The troops fought a battle, and they won. I mean... What attitude but he didn't that, enjoy that it that sufficiently. Into, you know, yeah. <laughs> now, this this view uh, then that has, that has become the mainstream view is largely based on Grant's memoirs, to some extent on Sheridan's memoirs. But we're seeing in historiography in the last few years a real uh, reaction against Grant's memoirs. Um, the Joseph yes. Rose is probably the most well-known Star. writer to to. Uh, really write very critically and caustically about Grant's memoirs and Grant's accounts. Uh, You've got Frank Varney writing about uh, Grant's vendetta against Rosecrans. Uh, David Powell, who will be on the show in a few weeks, talks about uh, Stanton and Grant's treatment of Rosecrans after Chickamauga. You've also got Eric Wittenberg's work on Sheridan, where he goes after Sheridan's <clears throat> reputation as a great cavalry commander, which Grant certainly uh, polished, uh, and, yep. and, and Eric Wittenberg goes after that in his work. So, and, and now your book fits into this historiographical trend of taking a, a, a look behind what Grant and, and f- favorites of his like Sheridan happened to say and looking at the actual record and finding that, that maybe things aren't as we always thought they were. That's right. I agree. In fact, I had, uh, when I was writing this, of course, it was over a long period of time, Eric's book mm-hmm. came out. And so I actually have resourced that. I mean, I, I've referenced that because he sells mm-hmm. some things that fit into my understanding, and then I was able to, you know, link them together. Uh, so Eric Wittenberg was a source. Joseph Rose, another person I thought was very accurate, but unfortunately I'd already had my book out before his or, you know, his game about, but I would have certainly referenced some of the things that he did. He, he, he's a very good researcher, and I, and I think that going away from the memoirs is a major step in subjecting Grant to a fair criticism. I don't think he's a bad man. I think he was a pretty good general, but he wasn't a godlike guy either, and he made a lot of mistakes, and some of them were personnel mistakes. He made decisions about people that were, were not, very, not very good ones, and sometimes they were more critical than he had to have been. Uh, and I think Warren was one, and Rosecrans was another, and Thomas, you didn't mention Thomas, but I mm-hmm. always think he got a terrible treatment out of uh, Grant. Thomas may have been the best general of the bunch. 
I think that's a very telling comparison that, that uh, you know, as listeners know, Grant was on the brink of relieving Thomas of command when Thomas won the Battle of Nashville. Uh, and now here at Five Forks, he was beyond the brink. He had given Sheridan authority to relieve Warren. And as you imply, he right. expected that authority to be used. And uh, even though Warren won a battle, that wasn't enough to keep his job. So uh, Grant does show himself, uh, as in terms of a judge of, of character of his own subordinates, as uh, being maybe excessively favorable to Sheridan, excessively critical of others. And yet his, his memoirs are such wonderful uh, literature. They're so well written that, that they yes, have seduced well. a... a generation of historians into accepting them as both as factually accurate as well and, and, and now you and others are challenging that well that's the good thing about historiography it's always evolving and it's always being challenged hopefully and i think it's a good thing i mean there was a time when grant was the butcher and that was that's true probably hypercritical and not the way really to look at him uh but then he's not uh, you know he's not napoleon either uh, he's got some skills and he's got some some weaknesses and and choosing people is a weakness. If you think about his presidential record, you think, well, he had a lot of problems with choosing people in that in that environment. But I think he had some problems in the military as well. So we just have a minute or two left. Do you see that that Warren is finally getting the vindication he sought uh, through your book and the the work of these other writers who are. are more uh, uh, critical of Grant? Well, I hope a little bit, but Warren is, he's not Sheridan, he's not Grant, he's not a commander of an army, he's a corps commander, and uh, and for a long time he was, you know, everybody will always remember him from Gettysburg, and maybe that will be the best you'll ever actually get, but those who are interested in the Civil War, who want to get a more complete record, I think he will be well regarded, and uh, better regarded anyway than uh, he has been in the past. Well, I, I think it, it, it's certainly a telling point. Another point you make in, in the book is that the veterans of the war, members of the Grand Army of the Republic, uh, including those who served under Warren, and you, you cite in particular Joshua Chamberlain, uh, I, I loved your categorization of him as a professional veteran. Uh, Chamberlain <laughs> made a career of, of, of being a veteran after the war. He, he, he certainly got his full money's worth out of his, his war service. <laughs> yes, but, but but that he, doesn't take and, one thing away from his being a great a great soldier either, though. But he was no, a not at all. Veteran. No, I, I don't I don't mean that at all. I, I agree with you on right. that. Uh, but the fact, that, as you you point out in the book, when Warren's name is mentioned at a, a veterans meeting, there are cheers. Uh, when Sheridan's name is mentioned, Sheridan made a lot of enemies, uh, much less so. Well, there's so much more in the book. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, so I'm just going to say, listeners, you will enjoy Confederate Waterloo, the Battle of High Forks, April 1, 1865, and the controversy that brought down a general. Uh, you'll learn about a lesser-known but very interesting battle and also about the controversy uh, between Warren and uh, Sheridan, which incidentally created that huge volume of, of evidence from the trial that allows us to really understand the battle in great detail, because these guys That's right. talked about it for months. So wonderful stuff here. Listeners, you'll enjoy the book. And Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you very much, Jerry. I appreciate it very much. And All listeners, right. as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.